monsters. They exist among us, and sometimes they win. Even the devil was an angel once. The world has its own rules, and these rules are not human. Some of us seek answers to the origin and existence of cryptids and the unexplained. Join us as we venture beyond the known and accepted boundaries. Welcome to our nightmare. I think you're going to like it. Folks, good evening and welcome to another episode of Fans of Monsters Radio, where we explore the strange and the unexplained. I'm your host, Lon Stricker. Thanks for joining me. Now, uh, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe, like, and share our presentations. Uh, Please feel free to uh, comment as well. Uh, Super Chat is active during the show, so please show your support for Fans of Monsters Radio by clicking the dollar icon under the chat. Uh, you could support the channel as well by clicking the super thanks icon or the buy me a coffee icon. Um, your consideration is very much needed and appreciated. So tonight we have a interesting group <clears throat> of experienced investigators and writers and researchers. Uh, Ken Gerhardt is a cryptozoologist, a field investigator, for the Center for Fortean Zoology, as well as a fellow of the Pangea, Pangea Institute and consultant for various research groups. He has investigated reports of cryptids and mysterious animals around the world, including Bigfoot, uh, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabras, uh, Mothman, Thunderbirds, and Werewolves. In addition to co-hosting his History Channel series, Missing in Alaska, he has appeared in dozens of television episodes. His credits also include appearances on several news broadcasts, Coast to Coast AM, as well as being featured in various books, DVDs, and in articles by the Associated Press, Houston Chronicle, and Tampa Tribune. Uh, Ken has contributed to trade publications, including Fate Magazine, Animals and Men, Cryptid Culture, the Journal of British Columbia, Scientific Cryptozoology, Club and Bigfoot Times. Uh, Ron Murphy, the crypto guru, has been investigating the stuff of nightmares for over 30 years. He has delved deeply into the shadow to shed light on the things that uh, go bump in the night and meticulously researched the historical and psychological context of myths and legends from around the world. Uh, Ron seeks to uncover the archetypal precedent for monsters that haunt our collective thoughts. And a witness to a living pterosaur, author, illustrator, biblical paranormal researcher, Jason McLean, has authored and illustrated numerous books, including How UFOs and Bigfoot Proved the Bible is True and Metroplex Monsters. He can be found weekly on Ciro Papers and Texas Front Porch channels on YouTube, where he discusses cryptozoology, ufology, forbidden archaeology, and the paranormal. So, guys, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Hey, Lon. My pleasure being here, my friend. Yes. Uh, <laughs> hey, how are we doing? Um, hey, guys. 
it's it's great to have all three of you with me. Um, you know, each one of us has been involved with wing cryptids, flying cryptids to some degree. Some of us had had encounters. Some of us have written about it, researched, you know, investigated. Uh, Ken's been writing about Thunderbirds and a lot of the uh, uh, strange flying cryptids throughout the world, and particularly in Texas and uh, some in Mexico, as well as Ron has been researching and investigating uh, Thunderbirds as well in Pennsylvania and other places. And of course, Jason had a pterosaur counter at one point. Uh, I um, let, Let's go ahead and start off there. Let me start off with Ken. So what makes flying cryptids? It's, I mean, I know it's a, it's a favorite of mine. I mean, because I have been, you know, I have been delving into the Mothman and, and for a long time. And, um, it, it, it's something I had an encounter. It's something that is dear and near to me. Uh, in your case, you have been talking about so many different things between Thunderbirds, flying witches, and all kinds of other things in between. So, what makes what makes all these uh, flying cryptids? Um, you know, what makes it stand out in the cryptid world? Well, they're certainly unique. I mean, uh, Bigfoot is what I call the rock star. Uh, kind of gets all the, the press and attention, and of course. Uh, uh, you've got things like Mothman are, is pretty popular, but you know, generally speaking, a lot of cryptids uh, are not winged; they're terrestrial or aquatic. So uh, we're all fascinated with things that zoom through the air, I suppose. Uh, in my research over the past 20 years, what I've found is that there are essentially three basic types of winged cryptid reports that I receive, and I've interviewed dozens of eyewitnesses of each type. But you have the traditional Thunderbirds, which people always describe as consistently describe as having feathers and the, all the avian features, hooked beak and, mm -hmm. you know, but massive sizes, you know, twice or at least twice as big as anything that's that's known today. Uh, the second category, of course, is going to be the living pterosaur type, which, you know, people definitely delineate and say, oh, no, these things are not birds. They're reptilian looking. They, you know, leathery wings and some of the classic pterosaur features like head crests and rampharynchus tails and things like that. And then the third type is kind of the oddball group. And I think that's kind of like the flying humanoid. And I personally lump in some of these weird chimera types of things like gargoyles and mm -hmm. uh, bat squatch and, you know, all those types of things that don't really fit into the fossil record or the natural world. They seem to be more like spectral kind of really weird anomalies. So those are the three types that I've investigated. And like I said, they, you know, they seem to be worldwide. Um, although the, the classic traditional Thunderbird is more of an, seems to be more of a North American phenomenon. We don't get a lot mm -hmm. of those big bird reports around the world. We do get the living pterosaurs worldwide. Mm -hmm. We get the flying humanoid gargoyle types worldwide. And uh, yeah, uh, I look forward to speaking, addressing each of these and we can talk about the, pros and cons and different aspects of them that make them fascinating. How about you, Ron? What do you think about that? You know, one of my favorite things about these particular creatures is the cryptozoological element to them. So we talk about things a lot of times like Bigfoot and, you know, the Loch Ness Monster. But whenever it comes to a lot of these flying cryptids, um, we know that they 
have existed somewhere in the fossil record, right? Like, so as a cryptozoologist, this is truly an investigation into the zoological. I think unlike really any other cryptids that are out there, because we have a lot of information on these huge Pleistocene birds uh, right up until the time of these flying lizards during the uh, the uh, era of the dinosaurs. So that's what's so particularly interesting to me. You know, it doesn't involve interdimensionality. It doesn't involve UFOs. It doesn't involve any of this stuff. These are just creatures seeming to be out there doing yeah. their their natural thing in the world today, and they should not be there. Well, I guess the biggest qu question is, are they relic? Are they throwbacks? Or are they some type of supernatural or interdimensional? Uh, of course, that interdimensional word comes up a lot. And, uh, and uh, you know, what do you think, Jason? You had a pterosaur-type sighting at one point right well i mean it didn't stop to tell me its life story um right. but you know I, i'm i'm with ken i like the delineation and again with ron I, I like the delineation between what i would call natural cryptids which from my perspective appear to be relic populations and then the supernatural stuff which is again something else right um i like the i mean interdimensional is just another it's just a star trek word for supernatural paranormal right these are all terms that we're trying to come up with to say this is something that's not part of our natural existence so i do I, I like how ken broke that up because there do seem to be normal zoological animals that are just they they appear out of context for our expectation right now i would point out you go back a thousand years people they were unusual, but they didn't see them as outside of their context. It's us with our modern viewpoint that says, oh, they're out of context because we've created a narrative. And I think that's one of the reasons there's so much resistance to pursuing a lot of natural cryptids, particularly something like a Ramphorhynchus or perhaps a Teratorn, if that's what these, if that's what some of these Thunderbirds are, is that they break a narrative that, uh, that a lot of people made a lot of money off of and a lot and have a lot of degrees in. But again, the supernatural stuff, we, we don't have the, you know, the Spookatron 5000 to get a good reading on a Mothman or a Gargoyle, per se, to really test it. So I am a bigger fan of like the natural things because, you know what, maybe you get out there with a butterfly net one day and boom, you got yourself a pterosaur, you know. And uh, and then you can actually poke it with a stick and find out what it is. <laughs> and and I like that idea. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and of course, with those of us who have had encounters, it's, uh, you know, you have to live with it and try to explain it. And, and in my case, I, 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 I can make my own judgment as to what I think it was, but who knows? I mean, exactly. Um, now, can you, of course, you have been looking into a lot of this, this weird and unexplained winged beings for years. And I always go back to the flying witches mm -hmm. phenomena that, that was, I think that was done in Monterey or the area down around there where you were at. You actually did a, a video down there. And uh, what in the hell was that? Though it wasn't winged, it was flying, whatever it was people were seeing. But, yeah. you know, of course, in, in Texas, where you're from, there, there have been a lot of these pterosaurs and a lot of these thunderbirds and a lot of winged creatures that just really aren't explained. What do you make of all of this? Yeah, well, uh, as you referenced, in 2009, um, there was an uptick in sort of Mothman-type reports in northern Mexico. And so that I did that episode of Monster Quest where they sent me mm -hmm. down there. 
And strangely, a couple couple of strange things. Um, this was during, I think, a SARS break uh, breakout. So when I arrived at the airport in Monterey, everyone had like the masks on, and it was mm -hmm. like it's kind of kind of weird that you have these. You know, people have always speculated about these things appear. You know, during you know disasters and famines and things like that. But um, uh, I did get to interview a police officer named Leonardo Samaniego, who lives in Guadalupe, just south of Monterey. And yes, he did in January of 2004, while on patrol in the middle of the night, claim that a flying witch with giant black lidless eyes and a black hooded robe flew <laughs> through the air onto the roof of uh, the windshield of his police car. And he blacked out and... Uh, shortly thereafter was taken to the hospital and um you know it made pretty big news in mexico and that's one of the things i really things i really enjoy about doing research in mexico is unlike here where these types of stories are relegated to kind of the tabloids and the the kind of smirky you know human interest stories uh, something like this a flying witch in mexico is like headline news <laughs> it's like people are like so um, but yeah, what I'll yeah. say is that my interview with, uh, he doesn't speak, he didn't speak English, so we had a translator, but I mean, he was literally like breaking down and sobbing. And this is a pretty tough guy that worked in a pretty, pretty tough job in a, in a rough neighborhood uh, there on the outskirts of Monterey. And so he was, that was very profound in terms of, you know, as he was reliving this, how mm -hmm. affected he was. But uh, I was shown some other videos that were shot around that time in that neighborhood um, they had a UFO investigator involved named Santiago Uturia, and he showed us some videos of, you know, they were kind of similar to the one you just showed there, the, which I think was later debunked. But um, so, yeah, that's kind of a, you know, again, I've kind of put those personally in the kind of the supernatural, as Ron called it, the uh, Jason, the supernatural, you could say interdimensional. Some people say demonic. I think all of that is just perspective. But um, mm -hmm. those are some of the weirder cases of kind of flying humanoid type creatures um whether that connects to mothman owlman and some of these other winged weirdos around the world it's you know mm -hmm. who knows it's all speculation right so yep the brouhaha brouhaha yeah the brouhaha <laughs> you know you gotta love the you gotta love the latin american press though my god they come up with some real great one great stories um and you're right. They don't sugarcoat it either. They they put it out there. It, it it's very rarely frowned upon until we translate it, and people up here just think, "What the hell is going on down? What's wrong with these people?" But it's uh, a different yeah, culture. They're steeped in absolutely. superstition, and they you know you have the European influence of the the Spanish people, yep. but then you also have the indigenous, you know, Maya Aztec, you know, kind yep. of lineage there. And I think all of that makes it's just a different perspective on how they view this this phenomenon. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a culture that, that still has and actively embraces things like curandaras, right? Uh, and that's, which is a, for those who aren't in the know, they're not really shamans per se, but it's a syncretic, it's sort of a syncretic religious view where it has part, part Catholicism, part low, you know, sort of indigenous tribes, part voodoo, things like that. And it, essentially it's like a witch doctor. Usually they're female, but I mean, they're considered a i mean acceptable by most of the people and and they're accessed by most people you know it's not a, it's not this weird fringe idea necessarily uh so i mean it's a culture that still embraces the supernatural it embraces the odd it, it doesn't have a, this very disnified labor you know laboratory view of reality mm. 
so that's why there's a more open conversation with stuff like uh, about these kinds of topics. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting when we started working on the uh, the winged humanoid sightings up in um, in Chicago. I was, you know, of course, we had a lot of Latin American or Hispanic witnesses mm-hmm. uh, that, in, you know, that were making these reports, and I was getting contact from people down in uh, uh, down the Rio Grande area and talking about Lacusa and uh, you know other things that were traditional, and, um, and of course, we heard it from up in Chicago too. So, yeah, there. I mean, when it comes to these type of creatures, or this or whatever you want to call them uh of course it was very real to them uh it's uh, it kind of puts a whole new perspective on it and um you know i i still don't know what we're dealing with in chicago to be honest with you i mean you know are these mm-hmm. summoned beings are these are these natural some type or are they coming from somewhere that we have you know no concept or no realization of what it really is or why they're coming or why they're showing up you know, well, yeah. Well, it, it was even that's. I mean, again, one of those things that makes it even more complicated is what. Again, when you start when you step into that more that sort of other veil, you know, reality kind of creatures, mm-hmm. are they taking forms that we would expect, or that they are that somehow is, is acceptable to our culture? Are we affecting how these supernatural things manifest? So that's that's even a whole other question. Like you said, do we know if they're summoned? Are they natural? Or are we even seeing their natural forms? Are they? choosing different forms because they want to or because it's something that we're acceptable like it, it's it's a because again we don't have some way of objectively observing the phenomena and testing it. you can't just walk up and poke a mothman with a stick and be like so what's up you know you could i mean yeah you could i mean i wouldn't advise that but it'd be no interesting to see what that. happens yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but as ken said earlier so much of this does require some sort of cultural background knowledge, the idea of synchronization of different cultures kind of uh, merging different ideas into one. And even though in Mexico we're dealing with an indigenous culture and a Roman Catholic culture thrust upon it, that's just a several hundred years in the making sort of, um, even in America, you know, even, even around the States up around here, we still have preconceived notions about what is out there, okay? And I think that a lot of these times, whenever people are seeing things, there's a misidentification based purely on their um, their objective outlook on the surroundings. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I do a lot of investigations in areas that are um, the suburbs of, of Pittsburgh. You know, suburbs of, of a major city. Um, and uh, Stan Gordon, he he with with you know relentlessly yeah. puts out a Thunderbird report, maybe once a month about these, these creatures being sighted. And uh, one site is in Greensburg, which is about 17 miles down the road from me. And this is a suburb of Pittsburgh. I mean, this is a big place, okay? So uh, this one area uh, where these creatures are being seen all the time, I decided that I was going to investigate. Um, it, at the time, this was going probably back seven or eight years. At the time, there was probably about two or three acres a pretty wooded area, okay? Um, as soon as I entered the woods, I found evidence of turkey everywhere. Not only feathers, but I actually got to see a few of them around as well. Mm-hmm. So I think whenever you're dealing with these kind of 
sightings, especially from people that are coming from areas that they're not used to seeing these things. And maybe somebody that had some sort of cursory interest in the paranormal all of a sudden sees something with a five foot wingspan that they can't explain that immediately becomes a 10 foot wingspan of a creature that is supposedly be, you know, extinct for 6 million years. Um, the other thing that I find so interesting is right near that area is also a bit of uh, marshland. Um, you know, we, we like to save as much as we can. So that means about a little, you know, about a football sized piece of marshland right there. Um, but bald eagles have returned to the area and osprey has returned to the area. And one mm -hmm. of the things that I keep encountering whenever I do um, investigations into Thunderbirds is the great blue heron, right? These one of these oh, yeah. great creatures. And whenever you, even before you encounter them, they make a very almost amphibian type of call, right? It's like a squonk and it's kind of, it's, it's a very weird call. It sounds like a, a bullfrog on steroids, okay? Yeah. And oftentimes you hear that before you see it. And whenever it takes it up, take, you know, it takes off, it takes a bit of time to get up off the, uh, off the, the ground. We're looking at about a seven foot wingspan here. And as uh, Ken had said before, you know, the Rampharynchus, whenever we talk about that very particular tail, well, the legs on these creatures are so long, it looks as if it has a very reptilian mm -hmm. tail behind it. So I think a lot of these things are, are misidentified creatures more than anything. Now, what are we doing with the other five or 10% out there that we can't categorize as misidentification? And that's where the true mystery comes in. And that's where the true research uh, then takes hold. Yeah. Uh, to your point, uh, I don't know if Ken's heard this story, but it was a couple of years ago uh, here in Dallas. We had a woman just to reinforce your, your thought here, Ron. We had a woman in Dallas call saying that there were two tigers prowling around uh, the lower West end uh, and the cops got there and it's just two bobcats, right? Because the summer had been dry <laughs> and this made it made the news. And everyone's like, how do, I'm like, how do you mistake bobcats for a tiger? But Ron, to your point, it, again, it, it, most a lot of people now they don't understand the natural world anymore. They've never been yeah. out in it, right. and so it, it's very. So I agree with you. I think there's a lot of stuff that's misidentification, and, and just to take it into the cryptozoological world, half the people say, "Well, I saw, you know, a, a Wendigo, or I saw a, a, a Skinwalker." How do you know that's what right. you actually saw? Right. right. So it's like we have to we have that conflict, mm -hmm. but onto but you make a great point about the blue heron again with my encounter. You know, Ken, I've talked about this before. I thought it was a blue heron at first. Mm -hmm. I would have thought it was a blue heron had I not I had not gotten so close to me where I could see that it's like, oh, this is not a heron, mm -hmm. right? And that's actually been one of my theories, right? Is that I think a lot of people just they don't recognize it's the very specific ramphorinctoid uh, kind of you know pterosaurs that are still running around. I think a lot of times people aren't recognizing recognizing them for what they are because they look so much like a blue heron, mm -hmm. right? They look so much like this sort of in their coloration and their flying that most people just, they don't even recognize them for what they are. But I agree with you. I think there's a lot of misidentification. I think a lot of times they're also being, like the actual weird things are being identified or misidentified as normal things. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, again, it, it makes it really hard to know to map out where are these things coming from and going to what is their migratory patterns um because there's that confusion mm -hmm. between what's you know what's a legitimate sighting and what isn't because mm -hmm. all we have is they say well i saw this okay you can extrapolate some things from it but ultimately it's that person's uh mm -hmm. you know perspective and 
like you said, you have then you have cultural expectations, what they've seen in movies, mm -hmm. right? Th this is all in someone's head and it's going to shape how they're seeing this thing that they see for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it's it's definitely complicated, but it, the fact is they're there and I, I think we've got a great group of people running around actually trying to investigate this absolutely this phenomenon now now i do have a question for all of you gentlemen here and i'll be a little bit of the devil's advocate here and i'm sure that ken has a great answer for this as well too because i admire this man very much i, I gotta tell you just you know just my little two cents right here so you know getting started in this field I always looked up to Ken because he always has a very rational outlook on these things, okay? Mm -hmm. And I remember as a young guy just getting my start in here, he was very, very kind to me. So he will always be uh, the guy that I admire. So I can anytime I share any kind of stage with you or screen with you, I'm very, very pleased. So I, I will say that. But I do have a question for you guys, and that is, evolutionarily speaking, if there is indeed a carryover from the end of the, uh, the Cretaceous period, do you think that evolution would have frozen it in such a way that it still appears the way it would have 65 million years ago, or would it necessarily have had to adapt itself into something, into some sort of form far different from what we know from the fossil record? Seeing that it is a, uh, you know, terrestrial being, right, or, you know, uh, something that can take flight, would it necessarily have to evolve into something differently in order to maintain that niche within its environment? What do you think, Ken? Um, well, that's a great question, Ron. As always, very thoughtful. Um, yeah, so evolution always ha is continually happening in every species on the planet. It just happens at different rates depending on how animals are adapting to their environment or whether they've already found their niche, as you so eloquently explained. A lot of what we know about the pterosaurs is purely speculation because it's all based on fossils where they're found, uh, you know, the morphology and things like that. So any paleontologist worth his salt will tell you that, you know, they're really just guessing, you know, it's a speculation mm -hmm. what pterosaurs were like during the Cretaceous. Now, the earth has obviously changed quite a bit over the past 65 million years. We've gone through several different epochs with warming, cooling, water levels going up and down and then, then the great glacial events of the Pleistocene. So it obviously, if there were a, a lineage of living pterosaurs alive today, they would have adapted and evolved a lot through that time period as well. And subsequently, what we have today is basically a highly evolved descendant of those lineages during the Cretaceous. So that's, you know, scientifically, that, that's the best way you could hypothesize about that. Now, there are obvious zoological issues with that hypothesis. Mainly, why aren't they being seen more often? Uh, you know, where are they living exactly since it seems like the reports seem to be stemming from all over the place, from Georgia to Canada to, you know, it's not like they're, I mean, we used to think of just like New Guinea, you know, that makes sense if they're in some remote jungle, but now they're like flying over Atlanta. So, <laughs> you know, where are these things living? You know, why aren't people finding nests or more physical evidence? Why hasn't anyone found a dead one, you know, or, or fossil evidence newer than 65 million years ago? There's no evidence that they survived, you know, beyond that boundary at the end of the Cretaceous. Um, so it's a great mystery, but, um, you know, it's not totally impossible. And that's why it's fun to sit here and kind of speculate and talk about. I mean, Jason is convinced he's seen one. I've interviewed 
dozens and dozens of people that are very, I consider to be very credible and like Jason and very skilled observers that said, no, I know what I saw. So it's, you know, it's kind of hard to refute that, that evidence, I think. Um, and we can kind of circle back around to the, the, the feathered thunderbirds, but I would just like to point out that zoologically speaking, you could make a much stronger argument for the existence of those giant Pleistocene birds that Ron was talking about earlier, the Teratorns or, you know, something like that. That was only like 10 or 11,000 years ago, which is like a drop in the, in the bucket compared to 65 million years. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, but you know, the same issues apply in terms of where are these things? Why don't we have giant feathers and eggs and, you know, more sightings and things like that. So it's a great mystery either way, you know, either of these winged cryptids that, that have more of a kind of a, a natural zoological form, you know, how it's not impossible that these things survive from, you know, prehistoric times, but how and where are they? And, and you know, why can't we get better evidence at this point? Mm. Yeah. And that's a huge question. That's where the woo comes in, isn't it? Because if these creatures are indeed, you know, plying our skies to this day, um, there are people with binoculars to the sky over every migratory birdway in, in, in America, you know. Um, these things would probably be caught up on radar at the local airport. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, you would find feathers or, as I've said before, uh, one of these things are bound to poop on somebody's car, right? And you take it into the shop and your windshield's cracked because something pooped on your windshield. So, I, so if these are biological animals, they have to do biological things, right? They have to nest someplace. Uh, they have to have enough range where they're, you know, they, they have to have a territory. Um, and the other thing is they need to eat. Um, and, you know, whenever we think about these great large birds, you know, these are most you know opportunistic feeders uh, and they're going to eat carrion and they're going to eat things like along the road, you would assume. Uh, I remember one time on a Bigfoot hunt, um, I was deep in the woods. I mean, surprisingly deep in the woods. And I was very scared because I spooked up a bald eagle that was in very, very thick underbrush that was feeding off a dead deer, you know, so these things have to eat and people would, I would assume, come upon them. I mean, there are places in Alaska, I'm sure, you know, one of these things could probably stay hidden for a great number of years. But whenever they start showing up, you know, around cities, uh, that's whenever it becomes a little bit more difficult to explain away. Well, so two points, and again, I don't want to get too far afield because I think you, you got a great question. Um, as far as the time frame, again, I don't think there's been 65 million years between when these things were traditionally seen versus today. I think we're in the we're looking the order the magnitude of thousands of years. But that's an entirely different conversation. That being said, I do think they've adapted since when we would call the age of the dinosaurs. Because most Ramphorinctus, you know, that we that we have discovered, so there's that there's that, there that asterisk is only, you know, the largest we've seen is about eight to ten feet as far as the wingspan goes. Now, again, most of the ones that I've of the people I've spoken to, mine included, you know, they said it was between eight to ten feet. So this is not so large that it would stand out for a lot of people, right? Now, that being said, there are accounts of pterosaurs that seem to be much larger that still have a ramphranctoid uh, tail that may be indicative that they have changed. They have adapted to a very different environment. Again, we don't have enough data to know. To your point, though, why are we seeing these, some of these things around cities? Because in our heads, it's like, well, if they're out in the middle of nowhere, it would make sense that nobody sees them. I think we have two points. One is very, very small populations, right? I mean, think about black bears. There's 500, there's at, you know, estimated to be over 550,000 black bears in the continental United States. 
that's a lot of black bears, but we don't see them at, you know, on every street corner. They try to stay away from us. Most animals do. We see these things when they cross into our world. One of the things I, I you know, one of the concepts I put in my last book was the green wall. We live on, on these little concrete islands. We drive on these little concrete bridges and we, we've manicured nature where to such a point where there's a nice little green wall that separates us and the natural world pretty much everywhere we go. So in, unless these things come into our world, most people aren't going to see them. And as we were talking about earlier uh, with the, with the Ramphorinktoids, it does appear that they're similar enough to cranes and herons when, particularly when they fly, most people who are so busy on these damn things, they, they don't recognize them for what they are when they do see them. We're, you know, one of the questions that gets asked about Sasquatch is, well, what if it's just, you know, a misidentified bear? Well, I ask the opposite. How often is Sasquatch misidentified as a bear? Right? We we have, there. there's a lot of assumptions, to Ken's point, the vast majority of people are not trained observers, right? They're running around, living their lives. They're mechanics or they're butchers, they're bakers or they're investment, you know, whatever. Uh, it, they're not they haven't spent, in fact, we were before the show, what, we, what was one of the things we we're talking about? Most people don't, a lot of people don't even know where food comes from anymore. <laughs> you know, it goes back to the story of the, of the two bobcats. This woman thought were tigers. We've as a population over the last 70 years, we've become very, very separated from the natural world. So things just, people wouldn't recognize them for what they were, honestly. And if we're dealing with things with a very, very low population, we wouldn't see them very often. You know, there, there are people who are trained, they, you know, zoologists who are trained to look for wolverines. That is their specialty. This is a known creature. We know their habitats. We know what they eat. We know what they're, you know, they're, they're how they procreate. We know all these things. They will go out for the entire season and not find one wolverine. You know, uh, I always, one of the things I always point out was the, the original Blue Earth or what was it? Blue, whatever. The That BBC documentary that was just, gorgeous there was like three to five minutes of snow leopard film right it took them three years to get that film because and this was these were people who were fully funded with thousands of dollars of film equipment going out for months over three year time frames just to get a few minutes of film of these creatures again known creatures and because they're just as such a low population, it's hard to get them. Well, what we have with a lot of these things are probably very, very low populations, and no one's being paid to go look for them most of the time. And if you have if you don't have something that's spectacularly out of the norm, they're not going to be seen. But also, let me uh this is not a combative thing, but let me say let me come back to the 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 feather thing for like the Territorns bothers me a lot, right? I mean, I can I can give you the Grover Krantz thing for Sasquatch and I've got theories on that, but I'm still like, where's the five foot feather for the, you know, for this Territorn that's, you know, got a wingspan the size of a bus, right? Why hasn't, why haven't we found one of those? And I've got, I've got stories of Lachusas, which would be about the same, you know, the wingspan would be about the same size. I'm like, well, this is clearly not a naturally existing creature, right? A, a, an owl the size of a human with a human face. That's not that's not something that's going to be showing up in a zoo anytime soon. That's a clearly supernatural thing. We've I've got so many stories like that. I do question, reinforcing your point, that maybe that what if a lot of these, you know, particularly you know the the larger bird stories are paranormal, 
right? Maybe they are woo more than we would like. Now, I just yeah. I, I just won't write them all off because I, I and and you know until we know until we can definitively prove something, I'm like you always have to leave open the door. There is a territory running around somewhere. Sure. Just um, you know, feathers land somewhere and decay, and they just stay where we aren't. You know, we we like to think we're everywhere, but we aren't. I had blue jays that lived in my in the house I grew up in. We had blue jays every year. I only saw you know. If I were to gather all the feathers I ever found, I couldn't put a blue jay back together. That's right. over 20 years, right? <laughs> it's not like these things are, are are going to lose their feathers in a place that's convenient for us to find. And maybe people have found these things, but they're like, yeah, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to be the crazy guy that found the seven-foot feather. You know? Mm -hmm. No, I think those are all very, very good points. I truly do. Which is interesting when we talk about things like the Thunderbird, because so much of this is coming from First Nation reports and legends, right? Now. Oh, yeah. So we're not really dealing with something in the present necessarily, but we're dealing with a remnant or a shadow of something from the distant past that may have just been brought over even across the Bering Land Bridge for all that we know. But the idea within these certain Native American cultures and First Nation cultures as these birds did at one time live. And I think that we are seeing cultural memories into the past on a lot of different things, whether we're talking about Bigfoot or, or, or wolf-like creatures that we call dogmen, or uh, you know these kind of flying huge birds that we cannot explain away. I think we are seeing cultural recognition of these creatures that may still not, you know, may not be with us any longer, but they still exist within our imagination because of these folk memories. I have, that's a great point, Ron. I have a question and an answer for the whole. <laughs> they don't necessarily go together. Okay. So in terms of my question, because when people try to make an argument as far as like things like Thunderbirds being kind of paranormal or other cryptids that have kind of natural uh, zoological forms, why aren't people reporting encounters with woolly mammoths and Tyrannosaurus rex and all, there were millions of species that lived in the past, but it always seems to be very specific types mm -hmm. uh, of these cryptids that people have reported around the world. Um, and there typically are three major types of, of cryptids that are reported, right? You have the, mm -hmm. the hominins, things like Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, yep. kind of the, the, the hairy ape man archetype. You have the uh, aquatic which are typically like serpentine sea serpent mm -hmm. nessie type things and then you have like the winged cryptids and i guess you could make a fourth category for things that are more like predator like carnivore type things like black panthers and werewolves yeah. things like that now there's a physical anthropologist by the name of david jones who put out a interesting uh hypothesis a few years ago about dragons you know dragon lore is widespread all over the world mm -hmm. it's kind of the most common mythological creature you yep. can find in virtually every culture worldwide dragons generally are a mosaic of three different primary archetypes of animals snakes big cats and things with wings like big birds mm -hmm. a lot of the dragon archetypes around the world kind of combine those three elements and the theory is that the reason for that is because these are all major predator groups that preyed on our ancestors for thousands of years. And as the human brain evolved, we basically invented this super predator archetype, which is the dragon, which has all of these different features. Okay, I know I'm meandering a little bit, so I'll try to bring it back around. Oh, so please what, meander. What if 
these certain cryptid archetypes are somehow related to if we're if we're you know, discussing the possibility, like Ron says, that this is kind of a cultural or a psychological, sociological phenomenon. Is it possible that these three archetypes of the hairy ape man, the aquatic sea serpent lake monster thing, and then, you know, the thunderbirds or the winged cryptids, for whatever reason, those archetypes are prevalent in terms of what people are, think they're seeing because, you know, they basically carved out a specific you know, place in our unconscious minds through, you know, interactions with them over thousands of years, where which are probably pretty scary, right? These are all things oh, yeah. that are trying to eat us, as I guess, is or kill us or eat us, right? Mm -hmm. Or we're competing with them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that's a that's a possibility mm -hmm. if we were going to kind of, you know, tag that mm -hmm. on to Ron's theory about a cultural phenomenon is there, there could be a reason that these certain archetypes are mm -hmm. being seen. But the other side of the coin is that you can also make a pretty good argument in terms of like the Thunderbirds, the feathered ones. You know, I have a, a database that I've been working on for years with all, you know, hundreds of these Thunderbird reports. They're pretty darn consistent. Uh, the average wingspan described is 14 feet. These are just estimates and people are not very good necessarily at judging the size of things in the air, but some people over us estimate, but 14 foot seems to be pretty consistent. Virtually all the color patterns are described as being either black, gray, or dark and sometimes brown, but you never hear about other color patterns. And a lot of the birds that we were talking about earlier, like herons and uh, storks and cranes have very colorful plumage with white stripes and, you know, trim and different things that are kind of stand out. Um, and, you know, the hooked beak, kind of a raptor or an exciptorid type of bird. So that's one thing that I found kind of interesting going through my Thunderbird database is seeing, wow, these eyewitnesses are pretty darn consistent in terms of the physical mm -hmm. descriptions. They don't deviate too much from that basic description, which I think is, a, you know, a pretty fair argument if we're going to flip the coin and say, well, maybe it is a, a surviving giant surviving bird from the ice age or something. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with Ken. Well, to, to that point, I think again, and with Ron, honestly, we need to, we do need to take, things like psychology and folklore we need to we need to put all that in the mix because i don't think it's necessarily an either or answer right uh, we as humans again as an artist one of the things i've i've trained myself and spent decades on is how do human beings see things right i'm actually more of a minimalist in my art i like the idea of trying to say how little information can i give you and see what you and, and, and still have you see this image right humans see things in in very specific ways so i think we i think it would be foolish to rule out things like archetypes and uh cultural expectations because i think that's absolutely part of it um and again particularly when you start getting into the woo stuff i think there's not i, I think the line between psychology and the supernatural is not as hard and fast as we'd like it to be there's a lot of gray area there and i think there's more interplay than we would like for, then makes us comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the West, we like this idea that things we can put things in these little boxes, and we know exactly which box it goes into. We can close the lid and be done. I think some of this stuff doesn't necessarily lend itself to our current understanding to be able to put it in a box like that. And our attempts to put them in boxes is ultimately the problem, and what's actually leading to us not moving forward in some of these uh, conversations and some of, some of these subjects is the box itself that we're putting them in. But that being said, to Ken's point, there are consistencies across cultures and across centuries of particular descriptions 
that do with specific details that defy something that you could be easily chalked up to cultural expectations and even mere psych, you know, you know, uh, collective unconscious material kind of things, uh, or, you know, uh, some in deeply ingrained genetic fear of, of predators. I think there, I don't think you can discount some of that, but I think there's some details and stories again, like the, the tales, a dragon tale, right. That we sort of have culturally embedded has a very definitive point when it starts in artwork and you 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 see certain overlaps certain fine details going back to the pterosaur that really the easiest the occam's razor explanation is people ran across this creature in the past they've run across them for centuries which is why they're they say these specific details like the you know a diamond shaped flanged tail bat-like wings long necks you see them in the ancient world you see them in medieval artwork you see them today if I'm seeing people from different cultures and different eras seeing the same details, I think Occam's razor is there's a real creature that they're running across. But again, I do think we need to take these ideas of psychology, cultural expectation and say, look, this is something we got to put on the table. And if we really want to have an honest conversation. Yeah. I think that everybody needs to have an honest conversation. That's a good point. I think that, um, the zoological field, you know, t mainstream science really does need to have more of an open mind uh, concerning these things. We shouldn't be talking about this on the periphery. This is, should be something that's brought up all the time in normal everyday discussion. And I, I've said these things before. Talking about these kind of things should not be relegated to a podcast. This should be studied at a university level. You know, people should be talking about this stuff. But as you said, Jason, because we do not have them pinned down on a on a, on a laboratory table, and we have not put them into a category yet, uh, they are still non-existent until we can do such a thing. Because in our ultimate hubris, we have to kill it in order to examine it, in order to figure out what it is, so we can put a name on it. Okay, but no, I do believe it. I think that we should keep open minds. I think we should have constant dialogues. The way I look at these things is until somebody shows me differently, I'm going to believe that they are flesh and blood animals, at least whenever it comes to the idea of these flying, you know, flying uh, or winged uh, uh, monsters, whatever they are, you know. Uh, so that's the reason why I don't wait to go too much into the woo on these things, because I really want to see them. And, you know, that's my own personal preference as well, too. I would really like to see these creatures as flesh and blood creatures that someday we could study and admire. I'm going to um, go ahead and start asking some questions from the chat. Um, here's an interesting one because, uh, you know, it's near me and I've had myself stuck in the pine barrens on occasions <laughs> looking for weird things. Uh, Marla asked, do you, any of you believe that the Jersey devil may be more than a myth? Who wants it? <laughs> I'll take it. Um, so, okay, this is the Jersey Devil is actually a great sort of one of these points where folklore, psychology, and and then a real thing I think actually intersect, right? Because um, a lot of what people have in their heads as to what the Jersey Devil is, what it looks like, comes from a drawing that was made by uh, a, by an artist in Philadelphia based on the New Jersey event, right? Broad daylight, people see this thing. The artist didn't take the event too seriously. He and what he did is that he drew the descriptions literally, right? Head of a deer, 
bat-like wings, bifurcated tail. He he took them literally. He did not take the descriptions seriously. And if you sort of take the problem is we've seen that image. It's been born into our heads. So we think that's what this thing is. It's this weird bat deer creature. But if you take the descriptions seriously, but not literally, because these are people who saw something they're unfamiliar with and they're trying and they're looking for things, put touchstones that allows them to sort of make sense of what they saw. I would argue they are describing something very similar to a ramphoractoid pterosaur. And one of the key giveaways is the fact they all said it was a it was a bifurcated tail. That's, you know, they even the word devil showed up a few times. That's where the word even where the name Jersey Devil comes from is that tail. The devil's tail that we sort of see with Nightcrawler or, you know, drawings of old scratch from, you know, the Victorian age, right? All that comes out of the connection to uh, this sort of late medieval heraldry of wyverns, right? That's where that, that, that forked tail sort of comes from in heraldic artwork. Again, I'll shorten this argument because it's a long one, but that comes from these ramphoractoids. In fact, the ramphoractoids are one of the few species that had sort of this long, you know, flying pterosaurs that had these flanged tails. It's one of those things where, again, people weren't taking the descriptions seriously. They just took them literally. Well, if you put that together, just look at that drawing and say, okay, well, hold on. This artist was just trying to, he didn't take it seriously. He was just literally re recreating it. Well, if you someone told you that and said, well, hold on, that sounds like a pterosaur. Because we're more familiar with, with these ideas and these concepts. And we're going to take that story seriously. And one of the things I always, one of the reasons I do like the Ramphoractoid answer is, again, it connects to things that we've seen for centuries before. And we're seeing in the modern day. There's a through line there. Right. It, so, again, I do think the Jersey Devil is a real thing. I also think that the problem is we then have folklore that's built on top of it. Right. And so the problem is we, we we're taking these folk folklores and we're taking some of these other stories. We're cramming it all in this box. And what we need to do is just reopen the box and reexamine everything from from the beginning and say, OK, well, what's actually reasonable to associate with this? Well, you know. There's something definitely out there in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what it is. I've had police officers and pretty trusted witnesses come forward and, and tell me about things they've seen in the past. Mm -hmm. I, I get, I still get them. Um, oh, in fact, and you know, the, the, this this being or the description of this being didn't even start in that part of New Jersey. It actually started down the eastern shore of Maryland mm -hmm. and moved its way north. Uh, before Mrs. Leeds had her so-called <laughs> devil right. child. Uh, but there were sightings down, you know, in colonial times of um, of these, these so-called whatever they called them back then in Maryland. But no, I, I do get a lot of, uh, I do get a lot of sightings of these things. And, uh, you know, I don't know if people's imagination is getting ahead of their logic, but, you know, have been several police officers who have contacted me over the years about seeing these things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, and again, it goes back to, we then also have to say, because I do think a lot of times, uh, and we see it here in Texas, particularly with like, you know, the goat man bridges, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is again, multiple phenomena being put in the same box are being put under the same moniker. That's also a, a thing we kind of have to look for is 
are we seeing maybe two different phenomena being combined, particularly if you get the paranormal stuff sort of mixed into it. But no, you're again, it goes back to, uh, I see the question about the hammerhead bat, because that's been thrown out there a lot for the Jersey devil is the hammerhead bat. And mm -hmm. I think it's a very poor, um, I, I understand why, because of the, the face, but it's a very, I think it's a poor answer because there's a, they're, they're just not nearly large enough that, you know, compared to what people describe, they don't have long tails also. And right? they would it, die in New exactly. Jersey. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're strictly niche, tropical, subtropical mm -hmm. species, humid rainforests. And yeah. yeah, gallivanting through the snow in New Jersey and Pennsylvania in January not that does not does not sound like a hammerhead bat to me. And of course, you know when you get any type of sighting that, that even mimics at all a creature that lives in the tropics, uh, you're going to get some people that are going to come up with that and say, "Well, you know, maybe there was a suit mm -hmm. nearby, it got away, or mm -hmm. whatever." You know, you hear you hear all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. The, um, the 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 train the zoo train or the circus yeah. train wreck and it's like yeah. man if all these you'd expect that like no one would have put circuses on trains considering how many accidents <laughs> had to have occurred <laughs> to account for all of these different yeah. sightings it's like like i'm sorry i'm not a big fan of amtrak but they've got a better rating than this yeah you know that's a good point, Jason. I, the very first time that a circus train wreck, oh, well, we lost some gorillas and a 30-foot snake. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That'll spawn some legends, but I guess maybe we shouldn't do that again. Well, isn't that, the, isn't that the reason why we've got so many skunk apes down in Mayaka and down there because of a circus train that cracked mm -hmm. open or whatever? I mean, or a hurricane that uh, hit a pet store or something to that effect. But, uh, you know, I, I've heard that excuse a lot of times, too. So, um well, the Tarzan movies too, right? Supposedly yeah. a bunch of monkeys and mm -hmm. things escape. So I wouldn't, you know, of all the, and I know we're, we shouldn't get off wing cryptids here too much, but, you know, I've I've seen at least one video that was shot in the green swamp that was clearly a chimpanzee running around feral yep. or something years mm -hmm. ago. So yes, mm -hmm. to some degree, I think you do have probably in Florida some some pretty, you know, maybe a hammerhead bats and whatever else, but no one's it, it, talking it about cool. the Jacksonville devil, so yeah <laughs> well we've got them here in texas too i mean it, yeah. again humans one of the things we're very bad at is bringing non-native species into new areas and just losing track of them and, and again I, i'm certain that does count for some of these misidentifications absolutely i'm right there with you i just don't think it counts for all of them well, that's and right. certainly, that's right. yeah and certain there are some that you just can't again what i saw I, the thing was five feet from me its wingtip was five feet from my face I'm like, I, okay, what hammerhead bat, you know, that I'm, I, I would like, I would be like, that's a weird looking bat, you know, it, it's, it's like some of these encounters are within yards or even feet sometimes in broad daylight. It's like, you can't write that off as somebody's escaped capuchin, you know, yeah. and they're like, no, it was a 10 foot tall, you know, ape like creature. It was a whatever, you know, there's a point where you're like, you know, we're bad about some things, but I don't think we're bad about mis you know, some zoos like, oh, we had this one rare bipedal ape that's some sort of weird mutation that we happen to lose, and that's all it is. Um and but you know, you, when you look at it now, we're talking about winged cryptids. Um there do seem to be certain states 
in the, if we're talking about United States that that do have seem to have more of these sightings than than other places. Texas is one. Utah, Indiana, Illinois, and Pennsylvania seem to be well, and there are a few down in Florida, but these seem to be the areas where a lot of this stuff turns up. I have had so many sightings of pterosaur-like creatures in Utah and Texas uh, that, and even up in Illinois, of course, since all this stuff's been going on in Chicago, of course, it's a few of these have turned up. Uh, why is that? Is it is it that people believe that they are there, probably from the lore of the indigenous people? Or are people really seeing something? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I, I know that I do a lot of folklore investigation into the Appalachian area. And I know like with things like the Snellygaster in West Virginia mm-hmm. and other parts, uh, it, it's folklore that traveled over from, you know, uh, uh, the Scots-Irish and just took hold here in America. And they adapted some other things with it and became its own form of, of folklore in and of itself. And that's one of the fascinating things about studying cryptozoology for me as well, too. Not so much the animals, but the way the people perceive these animals and the mm-hmm. way they talk about them and the way, they, the way they come to life. I think a lot of times investigating that gray matter of your mind is just as fascinating as going into the green forest and looking for things. I, I think there's a lot of things lurking around in those minds of ours that are, are quite scary in and of themselves. But I think it's a combination mm-hmm. of a lot of things. I think that also when you look at these areas, there is native populations of certain types of creatures that could be explained away by, um, you know, projecting another a cryptid onto them. Uh, places like um, uh, West Virginia have a large indigenous population of turkey vultures. You know, these kind of things. Now, I'm just saying that you know we have instances within these cultures of large flying birds or certain types of reptiles or certain types of animals that could easily translate into this this monstrosity that was brought to uh the new world uh from a uh from a scotch irish or whatever ethnic uh, uh immigration that took place like for instance the um the albert witch out there in uh Columbiana county in pennsylvania mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of research stating that um whenever the the um, people emigrated over here from places like germany uh they took their background and projected it onto the Bigfoot folklore of that yeah. area. And you have oh, yeah. something created all by itself, something relatively unique. So, uh, yeah, I think I think a lot of that stuff is going on. But as you said again before, Jason, though, that doesn't explain everything away. That's a great yeah. look into linguistics and the way linguistics can form reality mm-hmm. with the human mind. But that does oh, not yeah. explain away everything. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the Worf uh, Saphir hypothesis, and you know, oh, absolutely. It, yeah, it's absolutely. one of those. It's one of those things that you yeah. learn, you you you, le- you read about in college. And you're like, holy cow! And you start getting into it again. The mind is a, is is an amazing thing that we again. It needs to be a big part of this entire conversation. Um, but as to your question about the folklore uh, aspect, I have I have two points. One, one things we we always have to remember. We can see we only are seeing these things where we happen to be right and it's very easy for us to confuse where we encounter them as to where these things are native to or live you know they may just be passing through where we happen to be and that's where we encounter them so that's always one one sort of aspect of it but to your point yeah i mean there does seem to be a propensity for these things to be seen in the west and the folklore is there 
and it's easy for us to say the folklore is there, therefore people are seeing it now. I would suggest that the other possibility goes back to the folklore evolves because the things are there to begin with, right? The folklore is evolving around the fact that these things exist. Because often what folklore is, is our is a an ex, it's an attempt to explain a phenomena that's being encountered. And it's born out of, again, there's a lack of data. There is a phenomena there, but they're trying to explain that. So I think that's why I, I tend I tend to lean towards the idea that maybe the reason the folklore and some of these cryptids sort of coincide in areas, in particular areas, is because the creature is there, and that's why the folklore evolved. But to your point, to your earlier, and I think the most important point is, why are we seeing a very distinctive abundance of some of these contacts coming out of Texas, Utah, you know, sort of the desert, you know, sort of the desert area for the United States. Honestly, for at least the pterosaurs I've been able to serve, you know, stories I've been able to collect in, which is the South, Southern Oklahoma, Northern Texas region. Honestly, it looks like there's a, a migratory pattern from what I'm seeing, because there does seem to be a, a connection, particularly for the, again, specifically the ramphractoid types that I saw. They seem to glide, which means they want updrafts. They want hills. Again, we're, I've got numerous sightings in the creek where I was. Well, the creek that I was in, you know, it's 10, 15 feet deep. It's It's got very steep sides because uh, it's in the limestone uh, bedrock of, of North Texas. So there's air currents there. And it does seem like these things are using them to move and to glide and to fly and to gain altitude. Uh Crosbyton, Texas, there's a whole, but you know, you go out to deep West Texas. Again, you've got a lot of ravines. You've got a lot of, you know, high peaks for them to, to sort of take off and glide. There does seem to be a, a migratory pattern from North, you know, sort of the doubt, the DFW area out West. And they are moving sort of Southern Oklahoma out towards, you know, Colorado, out Arizona area. There's a definitive sort of pathway there. And that matches up with like what you see with the Rio Grande Valley. A lot of, you know, steep cliffs and areas, not all the way necessarily down to San Antonio. Like, and we do have accounts coming out of, you know, places that are less uh, sort of rugged and terrain. But again, you have a lot of that kind of similar topography. And that seems to be something that they like. That seems to be sort of connected to their, uh, to their gliding patterns. That would be my, that's my current hypothesis is that we're seeing a migratory pattern. They're sticking to areas that perhaps, for the smaller ones at least, it aids in their ability to fly to survive. Honestly, going back to Ron's point, one of the things I'm looking for is I'm looking for dead juveniles. Because with reptiles, they don't nest like birds do, right? They they're sort of, they just move like sea turtles. But I do think they're, they're coming back to this area to breed, and which means there's going to be a bunch of baby pterosaurs running around that aren't going to make it. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those that, you know, got, you know, they, they got out there and then they just didn't make it. It was, you know, they were just a little too weak, but that they're, they're using these creeks and these other topographies to, to nest, to hide and to, to fly, to sort of gain, get that updraft. Yeah. I'd like to make a, a well-stated Jason as always, I'd like to make a form two hypotheses based on my research of, winged cryptids for years um, with regard to the zoological reality of these two different archetypes mm -hmm. that we're talking about. In terms of living pterosaurs, and Jason's right, there are a lot of consistencies in the, the eyewitnesses that I've interviewed mm -hmm. through the years, 
It's not generally the giant 20 to 30 foot pterodactyl that people envision, but it's usually more like the six to eight foot wingspan of something more like a, a large mm -hmm. Ramphorhynchus type with the, the distinctive tail. Um, I think if those things exist, they have to have a primary, I would assume they would have a primary habitat where they're probably seen less often and that the ones that we're seeing elsewhere in North America are essentially wandering or mm -hmm. migrating on different routes, as Jason suggests. And I think the most likely location that these things hypothetic, hypothetically would exist, primarily would exist, would be in the mountains of Mexico. And mm -hmm. I think you can actually, I, uh, years ago, I uh, corresponded with a cryptozoologist named Richard Greenwell from the old <laughs> International Society of Cryptozoology. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he had contacts in Mexico, in eastern Mexico, that had a lot of pterosaur sightings. And then you could certainly go back and look at like some of the, the reliefs on some of the Aztec ruins at Teotihuacan mm -hmm. and stuff that have kind of weird, almost pterosaur looking things on there. <clears throat> the mountains of Mexico, I've been there, very remote. Uh, they have the elevation that Jason's talking about in terms of something that, you know, was going to be taking advantage of updrafts and things. So, and if you look at the migration patterns, and that would explain why there seem to be more sightings, I think, of the living pterosaurs in the Southwest, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and then kind of, as he said, kind of drifting north from there. In terms of the feathered thunderbirds, um, the Teratorn types, I think the most likely, again, you, you hypothetically, you would have to have kind of a base of operations for any species like that, mm -hmm. uh, because there have to have sufficient breeding numbers that are staying hidden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and lo and behold, over the past 20 years, I seem to be getting more Thunderbird reports from Alaska and mm -hmm. yes. the Rocky Mountains and the boreal forests of Northern Canada. And again, it makes sense biologically because if you had a surviving lineage of pterotorns or giant birds, uh, they would certainly be able to adapt to those high elevations. I mean, you got 37 mountain ranges in Alaska, take your pick. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, you've got Bergman's rule, which dictates that they would, you know, a big bird would do really well in, in cold weather because it could kind of, you know, tolerate the, the cold temperatures and so forth. So I, I, I don't know. I think if these things do exist, I don't think that there would be like, it doesn't make sense zoologically that there would be an e equal distribution all across the continent and all these different diverse habitats. Mm -hmm. Moreover, it would be something that they are concentrated in more of a remote area and that, you know, they obviously they can fly so they can travel across the country and you know you have these transient individuals like that uh stellar sea eagle that migrated from siberia to new england and, and yep. canada last year you know so i mean yeah. yep so i don't know that's that, that makes the most sense zoologically if we're trying to you know going to accept either of those possibilities yeah you know you t you talked about alaska and of course you did your series up there did you see any indication that <laughs> The, these type of relic type birds or maybe up there? Well, not specifically on that show, but I've been over the past 20 years, I can say I've gotten more. Well, say I haven't gotten the most Thunderbird reports from Alaska, but proportionate to the population density there, which is we know there's only mm -hmm. 700,000 people in that entire massive, vast state. Oh, but yeah. I get a lot of Thunderbird reports from there. And in fact, the most recent Thunderbird flap, if you will, from 2018 happened up there near Juneau when several people claimed they saw this giant 15, 20 foot wingspan 
type of bird. And then, you know, go back before that. And everyone's heard about the, the Alaskan bush pilot, John Bowker, that right. had a sighting in 2002 <laughs> and Moses Kupchak and some of those other folks up there. But I've been getting a lot of reports from Alaska over the past 20 years in proportion to the population. I mean, I do get them from everywhere. Illinois still produces a lot, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Texas. But, you know, Alaska seems to be doing very well. And again, you know, you could make a pretty good argument that that would be the best habitat for, you know, in terms of the main population of a giant type of exceptorid or raptor and that they're just kind of migrating out of there. Well, and to your and to your point again, when it comes to the feathered ones, you know these, you know something that would be large and feathered. You know, we have eagles that we've tried going thousands upon thousands of miles. These things are supposedly much larger, which would lend to them being able to go much further. The further north you go, the bigger everything gets to survive to survive the cold. So the fact that these that a lot of these larger feathered cryptids are seen in northern climates also tracks to your point and we have to remember like you said alaska very very small population canada canada has like 30 million people living in it and the bulk of those are basically living in some in the major cities there's a lot of canada that goes it's basically uninhabited there's a lot of america that's actually uninhabited you just look at it from space all those little points of light those are the cities where everybody lives the rest of it's open you know even here in texas Seven million people in the DFW area, but you look at it from satellite, it's almost all green. We live in very, very dense areas. So mm -hmm. there's a lot more space for some of these very, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, there's too many people for these things to go unnoticed. Yeah, no, no, there's not, a, there's not, there's a lot more open space than we think. It's just, you know, there's a, there's a lot of human arrogance we kind of have to get we have to get past on that. But yeah, I'm right there with Ken, particularly on the feathered ones. I think the Northern climates, Alaska, Canada is a great place for them to be. And the Rockies. I've been getting a lot of, Oh yeah. And the Rockies. Yeah. I've been getting a lot of sightings lately from like the Eastern Rockies, Colorado, mm -hmm. Wyoming, Montana, all the way mm -hmm. down to New Mexico. Yeah. But I agree with you gentlemen, but definitely not the chestnut Ridge. That's the area of my, you know, my neck of the woods where so many of these sightings are occurring. And then we reach a maximum height of around 3000 feet. So and, and it's very rolling and it's, uh, you know, about third growth forest on there, just not an adequate habitat for a very large flying cryptid. But then again, we get sightings there all the time. We do all the time. That's, that's why whenever I started off the show, I think so much of them are misidentification. But again, as I said, also, you know, what do you do with that five or 10% that is not misidentification? Yeah. We, have to, we have to address that in some way. These are lucid people uh, making, right. uh, you know, uh, so, I mean, what is going on? And again, at the end of the day, guys, we always have to put a little bit of woo into our brew that we're drinking. Do we? Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, I know Ken's going to say, uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, it's, you know, to, back to sort of the earlier point, I, again, this is where someone sees something for 30, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute two minutes what they have they have observed something it's being filtered through their perception their expectations and all they can say is this is what i saw that doesn't mean that they know what it is they actually saw did they see a naturally existing teratorn or did they see something supernatural that had feathers right again ken i know we've all got stories of things like gargoyles 
honestly, that's the weird. Like once I started getting gargoyle stories, stories, I was like, okay, I didn't, I never expected to run across this in my. It, it's like <laughs> I was, I was prepared for pterosaurs, Sasquatch, and like demons and stuff and ghosts and then all of a sudden i'm getting i'm getting stuff i'm like what am i doing with this with this like what's you know what do you how do you how do you it's like gargoyles what what do you do with that but i think one of those things we have to kind of remember is okay someone sees a large feathered thing okay did they see a territory do they see a lechusa you know they may not even know what it is they actually saw all they know is i saw this described this thing that i am describing to you and that's all they've got I think it's very, we get, as researchers, it's very easy for us to get lost in, well, they said they saw a Wendigo, or they saw a giant bird, and that's what the category we put it in. We have to remember, they don't actually know what it is they saw. They just saw something that, that's unusual. Yeah, that's to Jason's point, point I, it's Ron's turn probably, but <laughs> I've been kind of throwing this curveball into every conference and gathering that I've been at this year, but... Uh, earlier this year, earlier in the year, I had uh, the honor of having dinner with a brilliant neuroscientist from New Orleans, and he was just kind of casually fascinated in all this stuff. And uh, what he told me was that, you know, after decades of research, neuroscientists still have no idea how the human mind works. They really don't. Mm -hmm. It's a total, that's the real mystery here. And I think Ron's going to enjoy kind of piggybacking off of this. So that's the real mystery. It's how does our mind work? And mm -hmm. so... You know, that's kind of the X factor in discussing all of this stuff. And that yep. goes back to what these, my colleagues, the points they're making about perspective and perception. And, you know, um, certainly I, I'm an advocate that there are undiscovered animal species, remarkable species out there. But there's a, 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 probably a substantial portion of this phenomenon that can be attributed to psychological or mm -hmm. God forbid, woo, you know, if that's what, what you want to call it, you know, <laughs> things, things beyond our current understanding. Can I can I just make a plea for all my for all my woo friends out there? Can you can y'all come up with a different term? Because only Ric Flair should be able to get away with that. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I don't particularly like, care for that that phrase myself because it does sound a bit. I just Precocious. expect Ric Flair to show. I just expect like every time I say it, I'm like I'm just waiting for Ric Flair to show up and beat my and beat me into a pulp for stealing his catchphrase. It's like, dude, I just don't want to get beat up by a guy in in sparkles. That's all I want. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you came up with a great idea called Woo Brew. I would drink that, Vincent. I think he should already patent that. I think we should put out a big can of Woo Brew. <laughs> I think a lot of people are already drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> <my opinion>. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, each joke. one of us has heard so many things that have come from so many different people. It it, it comes to a point where it's kind of hard to ignore some of this stuff, uh, even as fantastical <laughs> as it seems. See, that's all I'm saying. Uh, I just don't want to be beat up by him. <laughs> well, guys, um, I'm going to go around the horn here and uh, give us give the audience an update how they can contact you. Uh, where they can find you and what you have coming up in the near future. Uh, Ken, let's start with you. Oh, uh, well, thank you again for having me on, Lon. I always enjoy Absolutely. getting together with you and communing with my, my good friends and colleagues here, talking about this stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't have too much going on at the moment. Um, you know, kind of doing some preliminary research on a couple of book projects. And uh, I believe that I will be on the History Channel in about 45 minutes on the, the newest episode of or one of the newer episodes of Unexplained with William Shatner, the episode's Real Monsters. 
I don't remember if we talked about a lot of wing cryptids on there, but that was a kind of a fun show that we covered a lot of, of fun cryptids. And uh, I also am a regular contributor on The Proof is Out There, which uh, also is on the History Channel on Friday nights. And It's I, hard I to miss you on TV, man. I'm telling you. I, I, you know, every time I see something come up, I say, ah, you know, I might... I don't watch a whole lot of paranormal TV or cryptid TV, but I, I think I think Ken is on over half of what I what I peruse. So uh. yeah, well, I guess I don't suck too bad. So um, anyways, I can be contacted on my website kengerhard.com. I'm also all over social media: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I have a YouTube channel. Great, and and you, Jason. Uh, yeah, uh, sirupapers.com, like that's in the little doobly-doo right there is the, I need to update it because I'm on Untold Radio AM every Tuesday now with, uh, Dean, Dr. Dean Bertram on Mysterious Library. But again, Texas Front Porch, T-E-X apostrophe S Front Porch on YouTube. Uh, all the links to emails and things are in the doobly-doo below, but, uh, worst case scenario, sirupapers.com has got all the links. Perfect. Perfect. And Ron. Uh, you can see me doing awkward dance moves on TikTok. Um, I, have, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I'm going to look for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I have a couple books coming out in 2023. One is on Earth Lights. Uh, the other one is a, uh, a haunted tour of Gettysburg, which is a family guide to uh, ghost hunting in Gettysburg, which I'm looking forward uh, to putting out. But before I go, I got to say hello to a couple people. Mar uh, Marla Snyder, who asked a couple questions, I haven't seen her for about eight years. I met her up at a uh, a conference up in Scranton, uh, Pennsylvania. I wanted to say hello to her. Cat Ward as well, too. And, of course, uh, Lady Anne is in the uh, building tonight. So I just wanted to say hello to those three people before uh, before uh, we get off here because uh, I, I enjoy them very much. Yeah, Marla's local. She's in York, I think. So she's not far from Gettysburg. You know, well, yeah, I'm just down the road. So, yeah. yeah. Been years since I've seen her. Hmm. Okay, guys. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. And uh, I always look forward to having you come on here, especially with these roundtables. They're always oh, fairly interesting. And uh, mm -hmm. I know the, the audience appreciates when you come come on. So thanks again. Good discussion. Thank you. You take care, and we'll, we'll talk soon. Have a great weekend. Thank you, folks. Okay. Take care, all. Now, if uh, you have a site or encounter report that you'd like to be considered for the personal report show, or even for the Phantoms of Monsters blog, feel free to email me at lonstricklerphantomsofmonsters.com. Um, I want to again thank uh, Ken Gerhart, uh, Ron Murphy, and Jason McLean for joining me this evening. And thanks to each and all of you for watching and chatting. If you made a super chat donation, it's truly appreciated. And your support was makes all this possible. So please like, subscribe, share, and comment. Uh, now, uh, next Wednesday, I believe, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a live personal report show. And uh, I think if I do, that Vincent's going to premiere his show V on there as well. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be sending, I'll be sending out notices and, uh, uh, you know, it should be up on the blog and everywhere else. So uh, look forward to that. So uh, next Friday, my guest will be my friend, exorcist and deliverance minister Bill Bean. will be discussing his new book, Tales from an Exorcist, uh, from the case files of Reverend William J. Bean. And stay tuned for Bernadette McDaniel's A Paranormal Life here on Fans Monsters Radio, 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific time. So until then, 
Stay healthy. Have a safe, enjoyable weekend. Good night.